1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Uh, today we will dive back into the architecture world, and we are joined by Jeff Mingay. Jeff is an architect based out of um, Canada. He's done extensive work in the Pacific Northwest and also in Vancouver, as well as he's starting to do some in uh, Minneapolis. He um, got his start with Rod Whitman. Rod uh, Whitman. Doing some work with uh three of the you know kind of most prolific new courses in Canada sagebrush Cabot links and um blackhawk and uh welcome on jeff oh thanks for having me andy
0: appreciate the interest
1: yeah we're uh we're excited uh to learn a little bit about you and kind of uh your work and 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 all the all the things you know that we don't know all right. Um, so why don't you, why don't you give us a little background on yourself and, and how you got into architecture?
0: Yeah, I was, um, fortunate to grow up playing golf at Essex Golf and Country Club in Windsor, Ontario, which is just across the river from Detroit. Um, Essex was, uh, it's a Donald Ross course from 1929. Um, yeah, so as a kid, I mean, I just took a unbelievable interest in, in the golf course, you know, my my brother and I joke around occasionally, you know, he was able to focus on the ball and the hole became a real good player. And I, I kind of hit shots and then looked around and thought, man, how'd they build that bunker? How'd they, how'd they build that green? You know, why is, why is the, the golf course laid out this way? I just, it was just something in me that, that, you know, an instinctual um, uh, interest in, in that sort of thing. As I looked at the course but then I was lucky too because um, my dad is an avid book collector, and I used to go to his office and look through his bookshelf. And it still amazes me that you know we're talking back in the late '80s um, when I was a teenager. You know, my dad had all the books. He had Golf Architecture by Mackenzie. You know, he had Scotland's Gift by C.B. McDonald. Um, all those classic books. So on top of taking an interest in Essex. Um, I had all this literature and all these resources that my dad had, and I started reading all those books, um, which was fun and educational. And so I started, you know, in 16, 17 years old, I started writing letters to architects saying, you know, I want to do this. It's, a, it's a, I found out it's a real job, and, and you can do it. And I consistently got the same advice from guys I admired. Uh, you know, a young Tom Doak answered my letters, uh, Pete Dye uh bill core you know this is again back in the late 80s early 90s and i kept hearing that you know if you want to be a a good a good golf course architect you got to really learn how to build on the construction end of things you know anyone can come up with um, theories philosophies but if you don't know how to actually implement that stuff on the ground you know you're not going to be as good as you could be so Long story short, I subsequently found out that there was this Canadian guy named Rod Whitman who had worked for Corn Crenshaw, worked for Pete Dye, you know, he he worked in a way, uh, a design-build method, Mm -hmm. so I just pestered Rod for, I can't even remember how long, and uh, he finally called me up and said, all right, if you want to work, I'm doing something in Edmonton, show up, you know, whatever date it was, and and uh, I jumped on a plane immediately, lied to him, that I knew how to run a bulldozer, and uh ended up working for him for ten years <laughs> so.
1: so so what was it uh what was it like when you know he said, "Get on the dozer like what what was the first experience to do?
0: <clears throat> that's a funny story i'm glad you asked it because uh, I actually just told this story the other night when I was in Minneapolis. I showed up on site, and um, we were – the 10th hole at this golf course was going to play up and over a hill. So the objective was to cut the hill down a little bit to, to reduce the severity of the up-and-over tee shot. So first, first day on site with Rod, he says to me, you've run a bulldozer, right? I said, yes. And he said, uh, okay, well, what you need to do is cut that hill down. Here's where the 10th tee is going to be. Here's the, here's the line of the tee shot. Cut the hill down take the cut material down to the tees and flatten off, flatten off the teeing area. I said, okay. So he leaves, and I get in the bulldozer, no clue even how to start it, <laughs> run it, nothing. <laughs> I finally found, that, finally found the key, started it up, started messing around. Rod came back, I don't know, a couple hours later, and he looked at what I'd done, and his first response was, you've never run a bulldozer before, have you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, you caught me. But, uh, but we hit it off and he gave me an unbelievable opportunity to, um, to just jump into it, you know, literally jump into the fire, get on that bulldozer, get on that excavator, get on that tractor, get on that sand rake, you know, and finish the green and, you know, it's just, just, um, I mean, it's the, it's the foundation of everything I do now and I'll i forever be grateful to him for putting me in that position without any, Rod's, Rod's an easygoing guy. That's what's so great about him and he, uh. He just uh you know gave me a remarkable opportunity
1: it's, it's interesting so do you think there's any you know i i think uh you know from keith rebb talked about uh bill core being pretty easygoing and laid back do you think is there a, you know is are there common traits that you see with uh, with some of the great architects that you've you know been able to meet and uh, do you think yeah. there's any common traits that is certainly
0: one of the traits that, of guys that um that, that I really admire, you know, um, Rod, Bill, um, Tom Doak, um, uh, Gil Hans, um, you know, that, that whole vein of guys and it all, you know, I, I often think it kind of all stems back to Pete Dye, you know, who, who was easy going to, you know, if you, if you, you get a passion for architecture and you want to work, let's go to work. You know, it's not about landscape architecture degrees and, you know certifications and all this stuff i mean you just got to get out there in the field and and work and 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 the best work comes from a sincere passion for architecture you know i mean rod always said on our jobs you know we'd have a guy we'd have a guy come to us like no offense to anyone but we'd have a guy come to us and say okay i just spent the last six years working for nicholas or working for palmer or working for this guy working for that guy i've been shaping for 25 years Rod would put that resume aside and take the kid who'd never, like me, like I was, who'd never been on a project before and just had a passion for golf architecture. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between having a sincere passion for golf architecture and simply knowing how to shape golf courses. Yeah. You know, and I I think Pete Dye recognized that a long time ago. You know, Rod, I mean, you know, he, Rod had no experience really when he went to work for Pete Dye at Austin Country Club in the early 80s. Um, you know bill coor i mean he, his background is in like greek philosophy or something you know uh, and, and from college and rod too he's got a he's got something like a philosophy degree i studied political science you know but we all we all came into the thing with with passion and um you know there's a lot to be said about that but uh, back to your question you have to take an easygoing attitude to bring bring people like that into the mix you know and Mm -hmm. again all those guys i named are just kind of like you know don't sweat it i mean we're gonna go out there and we're gonna work hard and and uh and get it done with passion and i think that's what you're seeing in a lot of architecture these days you know you're seeing a lot more a lot more passion than you are seeing just business you know like guys running a business and building courses and moving on to the next course you're seeing people who really really care and are really delving into it and are really trying to be craftsmen you know um with with their work so it's it's a a neat era you know it's a neat era to be involved in even though there's not a lot of golf courses being built comparatively there's certainly a lot of quality work being done which is which is really cool i think
1: yeah i i'm Interested, you know, you're a part of this design build movement and it seems like it's a a pretty, it's getting to be more of an even split, you know, like this, the design build philosophy, obviously, you know, you spend a lot more time on site. Do you think that gives you obviously an inherent advantage um, when you're, yeah. So, I mean, you learn a lot of the nuances, right?
0: Exactly. I mean, I'm lucky that when I explain to my clients right out of the gate that, you know, plans are entirely conceptual because, as you just said, when, when you're permitted to spend time on site, things change. You know, you things change as you're shaping. Um, things change as you continue to study the situation and tweak the design. And so to charge clients you know, an incredible amount of money to sit in Toronto and design a golf course in Seattle is both a waste of time and a waste of money. You know, I would rather have my clients spend, spend money on me being on site, um, paying attention to details as things get built and then also participating in the shaping as well. Um, you know, that's money well spent. And, um, you know, again, usually that's part of my, you know, part of my, my spiel when I, when I come to a potential client or, or a new client and explain to them that, that they're going to get the best best um, results out of that method uh, simply because, you know, you, you got to pay attention. It's like Ben Crenshaw said, you know, what's the most important thing in golf architecture? It's time. Mm-hmm. You know, you need time to be out there, time to build, time to look, time to tweak you know, and, and all those sorts of things. And, and the more time you have without wasting time or taking too much time, um, you know, you're going to end up with a, with, with a be- a, the best result possible.
1: I I mean, I know you write a, a good amount. And I think it's a lot like writing is like when you have the time to really write something and you and you keep working on, you know, things that they always turn out better
0: absolutely and that's that's a perfect analogy it really is but then you just have to find you have to find that balance right because mm-hmm. you know if you think of an author who just wants to continually refine 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 you'll never get the book published <laughs> so you know there's a there's a there's a fine line of when the thinking and the, and the, and the tweaking and the changing you know stops has to stop mm-hmm. it reminds me of a funny story dick young's cap who was uh who's the developer of Sandhills, um, he, he developed a golf course that Rod actually worked on with Pete Dye at um, Firethorn in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we were sitting down at dinner one time uh, with Dick cap, and he told the story of Pete Dye showing up at Firethorn during construction. And every time Pete showed up, he wanted to think more. He wanted to tweak more. And they were getting close to the finish line, and, and Dick Youngscap, who's got a great personality, you know, he finally said, that's it, you're done, we're grassing. There's no more changes, <laughs> otherwise he felt they they were never going to finish the golf course, yeah. so um you know so again there's a there's a bit of a talent in in realizing that okay, we've done all we can, that's done because I think you know with our artistic minds, I think we'd never be done if if we didn't have to be done, right.
1: Mm-hmm. So you, you've touched on uh, Pete Dye a couple times, and, and you know it, it, we're the tours at a Dye course now, and then obviously the players is coming up, and we had uh, the Heritage at Town. If you were going to say, you know, what's the one thing that you would take away from Pete Dye as an architect that you know really kind of like that you admire the most, what would it be?
0: Well, I, I would say um, the the guts. And the strength to to be bold with your work, you know. I, I deal with a lot of client clubs, and I just find golfers. And I say this to my committees and, and memberships that I work with: golfers are soft these days. You know, mm-hmm. they want the golf course to cater to them. You know, you, you do something bold, whether it be a deep bunker or a big contour a green or or something, and they're they're most of them are upset all the time. You know, they don't want golf. be golf and you know pete you know we all know pete actually gets a bad rap i think because you know he got he got this reputation that all he did was build hard golf courses i don't believe that to be true at all i find a lot of his golf courses to be really fun but there's Mm -hmm. always bold features out there you know that that excite you um to play and I just get this sense all the time when I'm working at clubs and people want to tone it down because they don't want to, I mean, it sounds simplistic, but I often say they don't want to play golf. I mean, when you go out, when you go to Scotland, you go to Ireland, you know, you, you see stuff that is like bold and hard. And, you know, yeah. I got, to, I was, I talked to Pete guy one time at the, uh, well, I think it was 2008 PGA championship at Oakland Hills. I just happened to run into him, and we were talking about things and, you know, he said, let me tell you something. I was all excited. Uh, um, he asked, you know, why do you think people play golf? And I thought I was going to get some philosophical answer. And he said simply, because it's hard. Yeah. You know, part part of the reason you play is because you always think you can do better next time. You know? And, um, you know, and again, I, I really give him a lot of credit. And I think he built his reputation on um, not being afraid to be bold. Um, and that doesn't mean make every hole bold or every course bold, uh, but you need, you need some stuff that's going to excite people, want people to come back to play and Thrill. You know, come back to try and, yeah, thrills and, and try to try to conquer some things that are, that are seemingly difficult, you know, or yeah. are difficult.
1: That's why I think. You so, hit the nail on the head with golf in general. Like, it, you know, the thing that keeps, you, keeps everybody coming back is the fact that it's, like, unconquerable. You know, you, right. you, you, never, you, you know, I, I've played some of the best rounds of my life and I walk off the course and I'm like shaking my head because I'm like, dang, I three putted from 12 feet and you know, it could have been, could have been even better. And that's like the beauty of golf is that there's, you, you're never fully satisfied.
0: Exactly. And it's, it's, um, it's challenging these days, you know, I mean, especially for a guy like me, you know, and. I'm still in the midst of building my career. I'm not a doke or a core or even a Hans or anything like that yet. Um, but you know, when you're working at a club and you see an opportunity to do something bold, you know, your first thought is, okay, how you know, how is this going to be received? You know, am I going to be, am I going to get fired here because I want to do something that's got some real character? But you know, and I, I follow through because I do think of guys like like Pete Dye and um and other architects you know you but you, you need those type of features you need those types of holes out there um but it, it is it's you know it's it's uh you're always thinking about the potential threat when you when you're about to build something that you know is going to be controversial but as you know i mean all the great holes of the world are are polarizing you know you yeah. either love them or hate them if they were if they just sat in the middle um they'd be no good right
1: yep it's uh it's it's very true, I mean, like Mackenzie thought Cypress Point was gonna be just maligned, but you know because of how bold he went, and then you know the natural beauty kind of over overshadowed everything, but I'd be interested you know you've you've talked a lot about you know dealing with memberships and and I know you've you've done a lot of you know restorations and renovations of clubs, like what would you say you know would be like the one thing? you wish every membership committee would do like, you know, having the experience, like what's the one thing that like really great membership committees do?
0: Well, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Alistair McKenzie. I think it was Alistair McKenzie years ago said that the best number, um, for a committee, the makeup of a committee is an even number less than three. Right. Uh Which is, which is one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it makes me think of the experience I had at the Derek club. You know, we, we, in Edmonton, Alberta, we completely rebuilt the, uh, an existing golf course. It's, it's basically a new golf course and they did a very nice job of, um, allowing us to deal with a two person committee. Um, we, we, you know, they, they, our plans were vetted through green committee, long range planning committee board of directors. But once we got the thing through the membership, through the club, Um, We simply dealt with two board members on construction schedule and financing uh, in budget issues, right? Mm -hmm. So we avoided what is most typical where, you know, you've got 12 people in a room. um, You you can't, you know, you can't come to consensus. I mean, golfers, golf architecture is very, very subjective, um, as you know, too. Um, Everybody has different opinions, and that's fine. It's wonderful. That's one of the reasons we have such a great variance of golf courses. You know, and variety is so important to golf. But when it gets down to it, and you've and you've hired an expert architect, and you've hired, um, you know, you've got an expert super golf course superintendent, expert shapers, contractor. I mean, you got to let them go to work. We, you can't you can't have twelve people in there putting, giving their opinions on every tee, every bunker, every green. Yeah. I mean. It's it's like spinning your tires in mud, you know, when you're dealing with that situation. So I think, I think the Derek Club, even though it's a difficult thing to do politically, the Derrick Club uh, provides an excellent example of how to just let the people that you've hired go to work and not, not, um, not have interference with with too many design opinions uh, getting thrown thrown in there.
1: You know, I think the the other aspect of it is, you know, most members of of private clubs are very, very successful in their trade, you know, and they aren't, they aren't used to being, you know, not the boss. Exactly. But the,
0: but the other problem too, like I said earlier, is that, is that, you know, I always use this example, you know, Jack Nicklaus won um, 18 professional majors and two USA amateurs because he was able to tailor his game to varying courses. Right? He when he knew when he was at St Andrews he had to play different than he did when he was at Augusta. Mm-hmm. And he had to play different when he was at Pebble Beach than he did than he played at Augusta, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. That's why he was such a successful champion. The problem with so many club golfers is they want the exact opposite to happen. They want the golf course designed and set up to cater to them. And I, and I'm constantly confused by that because as we talked about just a minute ago, I mean the, the attraction to the game is the challenge,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but but so many golfers want, they 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 run from the challenge and they just complain about the condition of the bunkers or the or where the tees were set up or where the hole was cut. You know, you, we all hear that all the time, and it's just such a it's such an ironic thing. Um, you know, and I can be a little sarcastic sometimes, and I ask people again, I, you know, did you really want to play golf or what kind of game are you trying to? <laughs> trying to create here that's actually not golf you know
1: well is it's i mean a, a perfect example is where i play in chicago i started playing there a couple years ago and i've I've always been a player that hit a right to left tee shot and um this golf course like you know it, it had some shots where you had to move the ball left to right and yeah over the over the years i've become so much more well-rounded of a golfer because i've Learned and been forced to learn how to hit the ball left to right, and you know, example, and and it's just it. it, That's the way people need to look at these things: is looking at it and saying, like, you know, like if I play a course that really tests certain aspects of my game, you know, I, you know, while still being fair, like you know, I think that, and I'm, uh, you know, like not having nowhere to bail out, nowhere like, but like where you have this test, like it's only going to make you better.
0: Right. And and I think that's why, you know, Pete Dye has gotten a bad rap is that he, he was, you know, Sawgrass, you just mentioned the Players' Championship. I mean, Sawgrass is so cool because it's like overkill of presenting you with varying challenges. You know, if you if you actually look, I used to I learned so much playing. TPC Sawgrass on the old Sega, uh, you know, uh, video game <laughs> yeah. system years ago, right? Cause they'd show you the overview of the hole. And when you, when you know a little bit about architecture, you could see that so many of the holes and so many of the angles are set up, you know, for cut off the tee and then draw into the green,
1: mm-hmm. you know, and
0: with the eighties, when the golf course opened with the eighties clubs and balls, um, you know, those, those types of shots meant something. And I think why a lot of those pros back then—I'm just being speculative—but my my suspicion is that most of those pros out there, when 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 Pete died, put those that you know precise challenge out there, and they couldn't hit the shot that was required. It just burned them up, you know. Mm-hmm. And and Pete always talked about you get into those guys' heads. That's when you really got them, right? Yeah. And. You know, and he was asking him to do, you know, shape it this way, shape it that way, hit it low, hit it high. You know, it's, it's just it's such a smart design. I mean, I still can't believe he took a swamp and ended up with, with that. I mean, it's, it's arguably, I mean, I don't want you know, to overstate this, but I think Sawgrass is arguably one of the greatest achievements in golf architecture. Um, you know, to be, first of all, to facilitate golf in what was really a swamp. Mm-hmm. And then to come up with so many holes that are just you know fascinating from uh, you know the look of the holes, the strategy behind the holes. I mean, I, I just got tons of respect for for Mister Die and that golf course. And I know I've kind of argued with a lot of people who feel differently about it, but but that's my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it also, the one of the things it does so well is it doesn't really favor a specific type of player, you know. The, you see a great variety in the leaderboard and winners there year in, year out. Yeah. Because, because you, I think that's what he does so well is that he, he always, you know, there are always angles and ideal angles. The ideal angles usually come with a little bit of risk, and then, you know, and then he asks you to hit shots. And, and it's, you know, it's very clear, you know, what you need to do. And if you pull it off, you usually have a great look at birdie or eagle. And if you don't, you're going to be, you know, and you don't miss in the right spot, you're going to be in a, in a world of hurt.
0: Right. And, and the sad part about that, I mean, I love the way you just described that, but the sad part about that is the way club and ball technology is now. Um, it's taken so much away from from exactly what you just described, because the ball is just being hit, you know, super high, yep, monstrously high and monstrously long.
1: No spin, and,
0: you know, no spin. You know, so all that shaping and high and low stuff is is gone, and it's just it's it's pr- it's pretty sad, actually. You know, when you think about how fascinating the game was even twenty thirty years ago.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think about it. Air- I had Aaron Oberholzer on, um, and he talked about the first time he hit a Pro V1. You know, he was a pro golfer at the time, and he was like, holy cow, this is so much different. And how, I mean, you look at, hey, I-, I think it's, the Pro V1's obviously been the one that's kind of really changed the game, because when it as soon as it shifted from professional 90s to those, that, I mean, it the spin just year over year has gotten less and less, and Ball goes yeah. further and straighter, and 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 skills diminish.
0: Yeah, and it just it just boggles my mind that that anyone would think that that's a good thing for the game. I just I don't understand it. But you know, I I don't know if you've read it yet, but I, I just finished. Um, my, uh, I'm friends with Martin Rubenstein, who's been a long time friend of mine. I was fascinated that he just wrote that book with Tiger Woods celebrating mm-hmm. the '97 Masters. And so I, I was I was flipping through the book. It's a great book, actually. and the the best part about it, for me, is Tiger talking about Augusta, and he he just frankly says that the 1997 golf course is not even close to the same golf course they play today. When we saw when we see it on TV, I mean, we we watch the '97 Masters, we watch this year's Masters. It looks the same to us. Mm-hmm. But the details that he describes in terms of, of how different, not only how different the playing equipment is, but what they've done to the golf course because of the playing equipment um, is just fascinating. It's it's really kind of a, you know, it's a, it's an architectural read in a lot of ways. Um, and, and you know, obviously we all know they lengthen the course, they planted trees, they introduced rough, but Tiger's, um, comments on how much they've changed the green surfaces and the green surrounds is interesting because the golf course has gotten so much longer they've um, apparently flattened out a lot of the pin positions and he says the greens have actually gotten a lot less interesting and a lot more subtle um, over the years in the pinnable areas which uh which has really made the golf course less interesting. He said it was way more interesting when it was shorter and the greens were a little bit more severe like they were originally. Um what? rather than just playing a big long golf course with 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 more flat areas on the greens. I um,
1: it's it's interesting and I that book is one that's on my list of uh of of to-dos. Um but is it's, it's it, it it boggles my mind how anybody how this theory of tiger proofing came about that like, okay, we've got this guy that's come on tour and he hits it so far. Like what we need to do to level the field is to make golf courses longer. Like what? Like that makes no sense whatsoever. He
0: admits that in the book too. He says, all they did was play right into his hands because he could, he could take advantage of his strength even more so the longer the golf course
1: goes. All you did was just remove and and now we live in this era where all the golf courses are built for power players and sure enough, power players dominate the game. Right.
0: There's no you don't see any Corey Pavens around anymore, which which really sucks too. I mean I remember following Corey Paven at that uh that uh two thousand eight PGA championship and I'll tell you what, you you wanna watch um Uh, a a fun golfer you know Corey's out there hitting cuts and and draws and low high with long clubs into those greens because you know obviously oakland hills was was playing really long and i kept thinking to myself you know what if we could watch the good players do this watch tiger hit a four iron into a par four and, and either cut it or fade it or hit it low you know um but you then, you know, you'd leave Corey Pavin at, at that 2008 PGA and go over to the guys on the leaderboard. They hit their drivers, you can't even see the ball. They hit it so high and so far. And then they're down there in wedge territory and they hit another high one and plunk it on the green. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's no fun to watch. I'd rather watch Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson slinging it around, you know.
1: Yeah. But I, that's what I always say to people is like, you know, people are like, oh, I, I'd love to see, you know, DJ Rory and, you know, Jason Day in the same group. And it's like, well, they're, they're all the same player. It's just like with it's just like um, golf course design. What makes a great variety? Like, you know, I'd like to see a guy like, you know, I'd like to see a group that has, you know, one of the bombers in it. Then you throw in like a, a Kevin Kisner. That's like kind of an all around guy. And you throw in yep. another guy that, that's a shorter hitter that, that gets it done a completely different way. That, that is interesting to watch because you see how these different styles of play, like how they all get it done, and it's fascinating. Yep. It's, uh, you know,
0: one of the, if people are interested in this topic, I mean, one of the great rounds of ball striking and shot making, I think one of the last great rounds, was Nick Faldo in the 1996 Masters. Mm -hmm. i'll never forget i don't know if you remember or not his shot that he hit from 13 fairway into the green he was on a he was on a hook lie you know severe right to left um lie but he needed to cut the ball into that green with a back right pin yeah and i've watched it a million times he had fanny sunison on the bag and they were debating and he had he had a I can't remember what clubs he was debating, but he was pulling one club and talking and ended up pulling another club, and he just sat up over that thing and hit that a, a, a bullet cut, and they, they had the camera perfectly behind him. So you see the trajectory of the ball, and he hit this beautiful cut off this hook lie, and it's just like, man, if you're a golf fan and an architecture fan, you're like, that's that's what you live for, right? That's yeah. what you want to see, <laughs> and you just don't see it anymore.
1: yeah. It's that's I mean that's the subtle subtle ways of architecture to really challenge people is give people the you know I think William Flynn was one of the first that did it was give you know call for a right to left shot and give them a left to right lie and exactly. it, you know it's uh, the that's a I think that's a, you know what intrigue I think that's what's so cool about golf course architecture is all like the little subtleties that that you guys can do that can you know really give great players fits. So uh, I'd love, you know, I I know, you know, we've gone on a tangent here of professional golf, which isn't the worst thing, but we let's get back and uh, let's talk a little bit about um, your work up in the Pacific Northwest. I think you've, you've done a lot of work at at courses designed by AV McCann, which, you know, having done a, you know, a lot of research, he he seems to be one of the more underappreciated architects of the golden age era
0: yeah he it's it's amazing actually um you know I back oh geez, it must have been in the late nineties um i I visited Vancouver, and you know I'm always making lists if I'm in a particular city, what courses I, do I need to see in those cities? so I started making a list, and I'm a kid from the east, obviously, so I hadn't spent a lot of time out west at that point. um I need to see Shaughnessy, I need to see Marine Drive, I need to see the Victoria Golf Club, I need to see Royal Colwood. Uh, I need to see Capilano obviously um, Capilano is a Stanley Thompson course and then all of a sudden all the other ones it was A.V. McCann, A.V. McCann a. V. I'm like who is it? who is this guy you know so I subsequently tracked down a guy named Mike Wrist who's from Vancouver who had done um, some remarkable research on McCann's life um, he immigrated from Ireland, he was born and raised in Dublin, uh, came over to Canada in about 1912 I think it was um, and he was back before he came over, he was in the loop with all the, all the big names. He, he was a great amateur golfer. So he played, he played amateur championships around the British Isles and he knew all the guys, you know, John Lowe and, and he, all the guys of the time who were, who were getting into, um, you know, kind of this Renaissance movement, in golf, the golf architecture, especially at the time. So when he got to British Columbia, there wasn't much golf around. He had the opportunity to lay out um, what is now Royal Colwood in Victoria, where he lived. Um, he tweaked the Victoria Golf Club, uh, where I work now, um, and he based himself out of there too. His his all his letterhead was uh, Victoria Golf Club. Um, but anyway, he from those two golf courses, he subsequently laid out courses in Seattle, Portland, all the way down to San Francisco. He actually was the original designer of the California Golf Club. Before Mackenzie and Hunter came in and and bunkered it, but he did. He worked from 1913 until he died in 1964. The problem was is that by almost by the end of World War II, most of his original designs had had really deteriorated. You know, I've found that out in the research I've done in uh, putting together the restoration master plans for, for his courses. You know, I, I'll run into guys, you know, I'll, I'll pitch the restoration of a particular bunker or whatnot, and I'll run into a member who says, you know, I've been a member here for 50 years. I don't remember that bunker ever being there. And that kind of supports my my theory that, you know, especially in the Northwest, when the when the second, you know, come out of the Depression into the Second World War, I mean, there were all, all the young guys who would, would have been on the maintenance crews and whatnot were over fighting a war nobody was spending money on golf courses because of the war and because of the depression. So things started to disappear, you know, bunkers went away and courses changed a lot. People had really forgotten about McCann's prowess and his talents. I mean, during the 1920s and 30s, if you look at historic photos of McCann courses, I mean, they stack right up with anyone else, you know, whether it be Ross, Tillinghast, um, you know and all all the greats who were working in america at the time um, as his contemporary but again you know the work deteriorated and by the end of the second world war no one no one remembered who av A. mccann was or what is what his original golf courses were like and again more, the more i delved into his life and his work he was he was he was on par with all the all the greats of the 20s and 30s so it's been it's been a real privilege to have an opportunity to kind of dig all this stuff out of the archives and kind of bring some attention to to, uh, to McCann's legacy.
1: I mean, you're, a lot of your job is being an educator. It seems like you know it's uh, it, it's interesting. I, I imagine that the Northwest has its own its its constraints, you know, especially with, with trees and everything more so than almost every other any other part of the country.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean not not only not only are there, you know, obviously beautiful trees in the northwest because of the climate, you know, you get those big, beautiful Douglas firs and and <laughs> really the northwest is filled with the types of trees you really don't want to see on a golf course most often. <laughs> yeah. uh, big, big, big evergreens that cause shade and root problems and, and you know, all those Well, that's what I was just gonna say. You know, the biggest thing that I've had to fight is that Sahali has long... And I've got nothing against Sahali. I, I actually have never played there, to be honest with you, but I've I visited the place. Um, and um, the the biggest problem is it's Sahali, because of its of its um, history of ho- hosting championship golf, um, it's kind of held... It's, it's kind of become the standard in the Pacific Northwest. So every time as an architect, and working with the superintendents I work with, when we... Propose some tree removal you know we're always fighting the well sahali sahali does it you know there's a tree in the middle of the fairway at sahali the greens are surrounded by trees at sahali how come they can grow grass you know so we're always we're always fighting that supposed standard of sahali being a course that's heavily treed where trees come into play um, where trees uh, shade greens and they don't do anything about it. Um, so I think that Sahali standard is, um, is, has been a real issue for us. Uh, but, but we're overcoming it, as you said, as we dig out all these historical photos and dig out some of McCann's writings. And now people in the Northwest are starting to pay attention to what's been done. You know, As you probably know, too, it seems like golf trends move um, east to west. Yeah. in uh, in north america so seattle's obviously going to be you know one of the last places where the wave of of uh, any kind of movement gets to in golf so but people are starting to become more conscious of the benefits of, of tree removal and the benefits of being able to see across these golf courses and appreciate the terrain and appreciate long views yeah. um appreciate more room to play Appreciate strategies, you know, when you widen corridors. So it's it, you're absolutely right. It is a it's a it's a learning process, and and pa, a large part of my job is actually being an educator. But I enjoy it. I'm, I I've always enjoyed history, as I said. I studied political science and and history, and I've always kind of been historically minded. So it's fun to, you know, again dig out the materials and put together the writings and give the presentations. And um, yeah, we've made some good progress in the northwest. So. It's fun:
1: I think, I think trees make golf easier for good players and harder for bad players.
0: I agree a hundred percent. You get a fairway that's, that's lined. I know you're a good player, Andy. You know you get tree line, tree line right, tree line left. you can focus on that target, you know yep, and, and, you, and you guys who are good like that focus.
1: There's, um, there's nowhere you at, have to think about hitting it you just exactly. have to hit it straight and,
0: and as you know the other people i mean how many fairways do they miss every round a lot uh-huh. so when you're in a tight tree line golf course you're exactly right easy for the good player and a lot more difficult for the higher handicap which is the exact opposite of what the ideal in golf course architecture is right yeah you want a golf you want a golf course to challenge the best players and at the same time allow everyone else to have fun and um, you know, and I use that argument a lot too because Av McCann preached that forever. Um, one of the most fascinating things I've read about uh, from him actually is later in his life, a kid wrote him a letter. I think it was in the he died in '64, so I think it was in the '50s or early, yeah, late '50s. Um, no, I'm sorry, early '50s because they were they were in the letter. They were talking about the 1951 U.S. Open at oakland hills you know when robert trent jones narrowed the course you know bunkered the hell out of it and ben hogan won and said he conquered the monster you know it was the first time that um you know just making a golf course super hard got a lot of publicity and a lot of attention and mccann was totally against that and the kid asked him you know i want to go into golf architecture um you know, what What do I need to learn? And he said, well, don't pay attention to Oakland Hills. All you need to do is read the two chapters of Bobby Jones' autobiography about the development of Augusta National. You know, he, he thought that, the, that they, they achieved the ideal in terms of creating a course that challenged the best and and catered to the enjoyment of everyone else along the lines of St. Andrews. And, uh, you know, it opened up with 22 bunkers in, mm-hmm. in 1932. It had big, wide fairways. But they could play the Masters in, you know, and um, that's a that's a neat piece of advice. I always go back to that McCann quote about. Uh, you know, who who would who would think that Bobby Jones's autobiography is an architecture book? But it is. It's those two those two chapters.
1: It's ironic that um, you that that same person that kind of did that to Oakland Hills, did the exact same thing to Bobby Jones Augusta.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. It's also interesting that Bobby Jones was working with him when he started. You know, changing sixteen and eleven, and yeah, it's uh, boy. If you could bring Jones back and talk to him about working with McKenzie and then Trent Jones on that golf course, boy, would that be something to listen to?
1: Yeah, yeah. I read something about this year that Golf WRX did an article with uh, Robert Trent Jones Jr and he was talking about it and it you know it just had me shaking my head the whole time you know talking about how you know they needed to remove bunkers or add bunkers and add water hazards and all this stuff and it's like god you just don't get it <laughs> it's uh it it's interesting like i think like the runoff areas that you see are so becoming so popular now in golf like is a perfect example for like the regular player that 15 handicap So easy, you grab a putter and you putt it, you know. But then for the for the better player, you look at it and you're like, "What do I do here?" You know, and you're like, "Do I hit a hit a sixty degree? Do I hit use like a a gap wedge and hit a low checker? Do I bump it? Do I use a putter?" Like, and all that question puts doubt into your head, and you and that's when you win as an architect against a good player is when you make them think. And, and, but for the, for the regular player, they, and, but like, when you think about it, it's contradictory, like, oh, these runoff areas are easier, but in actuality, they're harder for the good player.
0: Exactly. Uh, I agree a hundred percent. I, I mean, I love, I love short grass for the, for the reasons you said it's, it's, it it fits into the, the equation of creating the ideal in architecture, right? Um, as you just said the the higher handicap they can knock it onto the green with a putter probably you know maybe not close to the hole but at least they're keeping the ball moving they're on the green and then the shot options the tight lies uh present the the challenge for for better golfers but yeah. i i lately i've been playing the devil's advocate on that one i mean i again i love short grass but you know it's it's it, architecture all forms of art really but you know there's always trends in, in architecture and i think i think sometimes the short grass areas kind of are starting to get a little bit out of control to be yeah. honest with you, you know everywhere because I, I run into it with members too everywhere there's a fall off off the side of the green you know you there's always a suggestion about putting short grass down there yeah. and and as i said i'm not opposed to it but at the same time uh, I mentioned this earlier. At the same time, I think variety is most important. You know, you want to have holes where when you miss, sometimes you're in a bunker. Sometimes you got that tight lie on the short grass, like you just mentioned. Sometimes you're rough. I mean, um, it's still a golf shot, right? That should be part of the equation to be playing out of two or three inches of grass, too. I mean, you just have to make sure that it's not happening every time you miss a fairway and every time you miss a green, that's when the the golf course gets monotonous. So I think we need to use all of those hazards, um, you know, and kind of sprinkle them around uh, equitably so that you get all kinds of different shots.
1: Yeah. I, 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 something I don't see a lot of that I kind of really like are grass bunkers.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You don't see them a lot. Um, it, I've got an article sitting in front of me right here, actually, because I've been working on this McCann stuff and trying to trying to do things um, minimize bunkers on golf courses. And there's an article that Mackenzie wrote in the um, Alistair Mackenzie wrote in the American Golfer magazine in 1933, and he was talking about how golf courses have too many bunkers and actually advocating the use of grass hollows. And you're absolutely right. It's In all my travels, you rarely see grassy hollows. Pete Dye actually, Pete Dye courses, you see you see a lot of grassy hollows. But um, it's an interesting thing that I put some thought into. I don't know if I particularly know how to effectively use them, but in lieu of bunkers, um, it's an interesting thing to think about. That's for sure.
1: There, I mean, it's it's another example of like for compared to a bunker for like your your beginner. A grass bunker is worlds easier, you know. Right. And then for and, the for the better players, it's it's worlds harder.
0: And most importantly, it's less expensive to build mm-hmm. and less expensive to maintain.
1: Yeah, yeah. So,
0: and that's what that's what McKenzie was advocating back in 1933. And that that's actually a fascinating thing to to me right now. You know, I mean, I've I've had this um, dream of um, one day having an opportunity to build a build a bunkerless golf course. Um, I, I don't know, even know if it would fly, you know, what, which owner developer would let you do it. And would golfers recognize that you could do something interesting and, um, uh, without any sand bunkers, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's something I'd love to give a shot to, you know, interesting greens, interesting contour, uh, in the fairways and figuring out a way to do it without any bunkers. You know, I'd, I'd love to take on that challenge someday.
1: It's uh it well like you know like we've talked a lot about Augusta but I think one of the most overlooked great holes out there is the 14th and it's bunkerless oh, absolutely. and yeah. uh it, I think it would be it, I think it would be very cool. I I was going to ask you about you know what Kind of new art, architecture ideas or trends get you most excited, and that kind of feel, you know, doing something bunkerless. It could be cool. that You could do it. You could be a, It could be less than eighteen holes too. You know, it. Uh, you'd have to have a good piece of land, I imagine, though, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: I was just thinking the same thing. I mean, a, a nice rolling, sandy piece of ground with good contour would give you a lot more options uh, than, than a, you know, than a less interesting piece of land. That's for sure. But I don't know. I've you know, this is going to sound like a sales pitch, but I mean, I've always been a, kind of obsessed with with economy, you know, and efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would ra- I would rather have someone go play one of my golf courses and say, "Geez, did you see what what, what Mingay did for a million dollars?" Rather than say, "Geez, did you see Mingay spent fifty million dollars over there?" And I don't even want to play there. You know, so trying to figure out ways to be efficient and economic um you know is is a is a very interesting challenge uh to me and obviously from a from a business standpoint i mean geez that's what you should be providing your clients with you know yeah
1: um, well it's uh, it lessens like especially at a public course you know the that all the costs just get passed to the consumer you know and that's right. why we see 250 and fifty dollar green fees at a lot of these places like why is why does whistling Straits cost four hundred dollars a place well they they moved an insane amount of earth to build the golf course right and um you know like you you look at other places like I think one of the things that i've been I'm fascinated at from like this kind of discussion is the loop you know the tom dokes yeah. recent course, and I know uh Dan Hickson is doing a reversible course that opens this year up in Oregon but the idea of two golf courses in one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait to get to the loop. I I tried to get there last summer and I just could not work out the schedule, but I'm hoping to get there this year because it it is, it is a fascinating concept. Um, Amazing. I would, I actually looked at a piece of ground in British Columbia to redo an existing golf course that had this similar potential. Unfortunately the project didn't go ahead, but I pitched it to the the, uh, owner there and, you know, I, I'm. A, he was quite confused by the by the idea. You know, and I I remember hearing Tom Doak say that, that he'd been considering the, He may he may have said this to you when you uh, talked to him recently, but you know, a lot of people wouldn't get that concept. You have to find the right owner who's willing to take on that. You know that um, I guess it's just an oddity that a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't quite get. So it's cool that. It's cool that they gave Tom an opportunity to do that. I can't think of a better guy to give it a shot. To be honest with you, I'm sure it's great. Um, Frank Pont, actually a friend of mine who's based in Amsterdam, over in uh, Europe, uh, he's working on two projects where he's he's going to be doing reversible courses over there in the Netherlands. So, I don't know. Maybe it's going to become a bit of a trend, and I don't think it'd be a bad thing in spots where we can figure it out.
1: Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, like especially for a resort. You know, like, it gives somebody a reason to stay an extra day, you know, if you're trying yeah. to build destination golf. I think it would make a lot of sense for a member's course, too, because you'd get a lot, you know, variety. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but,
0: again, we're, again, we're fighting the, the North American mentality of, I mean, you know, I, I see things like they don't want, you know, members at golf clubs complain if you move the T-markers back and forth, you know? Yeah. They always want to play that hole at 167 yards. If you set it up at 137, they walk up and say, why did why'd you move the T's up? <laughs> so we're constantly, you know, fighting uh, uh, to create that type of stuff when people don't want variety, you know? Yeah. They, again, going back to the start of our conversation, they don't want the challenge. They don't want it to be different. It's it's It really... It's really um mind-boggling to me the way some golfers think.
1: Something I've started to do in non like stipulated rounds is I just play whatever tee box I want to play. You know? Yeah. And I've just decided that like why do I have to play a specific tee box on a specific day like you know if i want to play a par 5 up and make it a completely different hole than what it is i play the majority of the time why not if i don't want to hit exactly you know like if i if it's into the wind and i don't want to have to hit like a punch 3 wood on a par 3 i'll move up and hit a different shot you know it's like or if i want to move back like it, it, i just i think that's one of the the problems with the game is that we've become so it's it's become so focused on score and, and tease and handicap and that's what yep. needs to be let go because at the end of the day, it's just about having fun. And it's like like I, the most fun times I've had on a golf course is like when you just peg it, you know, and there are no T-markers out there. Yep.
0: You know, I, that's a, it just reminds me of another amazing concept that hasn't been attempted again, and that's George Thomas's, um L.A. South, you know, Los Angeles Country Club South course. Uh, when Thomas uh, designed it in the, in the mid-20s, his concept was to create a course within a course. So that golf course, and I know that Gil Hansen and Jeff Shackleford recently restored a lot of those concepts, thankfully. But Thomas wanted you to go out there and basically create enough tee options and enough options to set the pins that you're basically every day you're out there, you're playing a different golf course the holes aren't even close to the same because of the, the options you have in terms of the way you set it up. And really that just derives from the old course, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the old course gives you a lot of room to, to, to flex the, the distances of the holes and the greens are so big that, you know, you can take the pins far right, far left, up front in the back. Then the wind starts blowing. I mean, the old course is the epitome of course within a course and um it's it's a really neat concept that um uh, that I think that needs to be resurrected when we have those opportunities
1: yeah yeah it's uh a, it's, there's all kinds of little things you can do so i I'm curious you know we've talked a ton about uh kind of golden age architects um what if you were gonna uh kind of create like your ideal architect using like you know the different different skills, like, you know, routing, bunkers of, of, you know, it could be current, it could be uh golden age architects. How would you construct the architect, whether it be like routing, bunkering, greens, you know, if we put it into like, you know, three or four categories?
0: You mean who would be in charge of each category? Yep. Ooh, holy cow. That's uh that might be one of the best questions <laughs> I've ever been asked. Um, well, you know, I mean, I go back to to um, my childhood, and I it didn't take me very long to realize how great Donald Ross was at routing golf courses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, absolutely fantastic. I mean, rarely do you see a Ross course where the routing's been changed because you you can't really improve upon it. Um, so maybe I'd give Ross the routing. Um, well, I'd probably I probably sound like a lot of my uh, a lot of my uh, contemporaries here but i might put perry maxwell in charge of the greens Uh uh-huh um you know he's i mean the the perry maxwell greens the best ones are just off the chart good prairie dunes and whatnot um geez bunkers it's It's hard to say you know you know what i like about bunkering is i like variety i mean i think I, on all my projects, I try to bring a different bunker style to each one because I think that, you know, obviously the bunkers are one of the biggest visual aspects of any golf course. And um, Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw and their guys, Jeff Bradley, Dave Axel, they've done such a good job resurrecting, you know, a great naturalistic Tom Simpson style of bunkering that um, I think there's been too many copycats. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- I was going to say I'd put Tom Simpson in charge of the bunkering, but you know, right now I think we need a we need a kind of a renaissance in bunker style. We got to get away from that kind of blowout look and start looking at some different things. But that being said, I might put Coor in, in charge of the bunkering, mm-hmm. uh, e- either him or Tom Simpson. Yeah. So th- there you go.
1: That's it, that's... Routing
0: greens bunkers.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a formidable three. I, that's the thing yeah. I like about the core Crenshaw. What they do is the, the variety in the, in the bunkers, like we've talked about. It's like so many different shapes and sizes and, and different placements. Like they aren't afraid to just throw a bunker right in the middle of a fairway. Like I, I love that, and I hate when people like are afraid to do that. Right. Because that's yeah. right where you want to hit the ball.
0: That's what makes it interesting. I, I've often got that comment at the clubs I work at. We just restored a center fairway bunker off the tee at Overlake in Seattle. And we brought the committee out to, um, to show them what we were up to. And um, one of the first comments I got is, Why would you put a bunker there? That's right where I want to hit it. And my response was immediately to say, That's the point. Yeah. As you just suggested, you know now that now that there's a bunker right where you wanted to hit it. Okay, well now things are going to get 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 fun, right? Can I carry it? Should I play short? Should I play left? Should I play right? You know, now you've now you golf's an inherently physical game, as we know. And if you could bring a mental element into into the equation, you know, it's going to become more interesting if you take the right attitude toward it.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I think it was Mackenzie said, like the bunker. A hazard should always be on the intended line of play. Right. And you know the simplest was,
0: way to describe what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> You're right.
1: I, it's amazing how these those uh those old school architects had like a I think Riley was talking about it and it, it they're how concisely they could describe things, you know?
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: It's uh I think they were just a little bit more blunt and not afraid of what you know, what they were saying, you know?
0: that
1: could be part of it no doubt so we got a ton of really great uh twitter questions i wanted to get to um and you're you're a big music fan so i uh K-boy wanted to know you know has how has music influenced your work on the golf course
0: that's a that's a great question. Um I would say firstly that um you know, mo- most parts of my life are inspired by music. I tend to have headphones on um all the time. I again take just take inspiration from all kinds of genres. You know, my my tastes in music vary from you know, I'll be listening to the Doobie Brothers, then I'll be listening to Public Enemy, then I might be listening to a metal band, you know, uh, that I'm interested in. So, um when I'm out on a golf course shaping usually, I usually have my music going and again, I just kind of feel feel good about things when I'm listening to what I want to listen to and I think artistically it just becomes inspiring and puts me in the right frame of mind to be creative and and be in a be in the right mood to do to do good work. So
1: yeah, I uh, you got to have the right mindset for anything, you know?
0: Absolutely.
1: Every aspect of life, I feel like. Um, So uh, let's see, Uh, you know, we're going to transition to a musical artist who had a question for you. Micah Iration wants to know template holes, limiting or are they a great starting point?
0: Um, Geez, that's a good question too. Um, I would never call them limiting. Um, because you know the great template holes really really give us you know, you know they easily easily explain architectural concepts and philosophies that have stood the test of time and have worked and um, you know make make golf holes and golf courses um, you, you know be what they be what they should be. But on the other hand, I think we got to be careful that we're not just going around um, copying. You know. Um, I, another thing that I've been kind of critical of is, you know, I you, there's been a lot of talk, kind of like the Lacey bunker edges. I mean, there's been a lot of redan talk, you know, in architecture um, in in recent years. You know, where everybody's always talking about using side slopes to help people kick balls onto greens, and hey, that's cool. The redan is one of the most exciting par three concepts there there is, and time has proven that. But you know, we don't wanna overkill anything, right? We go back to the word variety. Um, so when when the when when the template concept presents itself in a certain piece of ground or, or a certain situation, I mean it's hard to ignore it because again, you know that those concepts work really well. But I think we gotta be careful not to not to overdo it too. I think that makes
1: sense. No, no, I think that's a. I think I. Um, I'm a huge Rainer McDonald fan, and um, you know, I've had the lucky opportunity to have played Short Acres, one of Rainer's best courses. You know, probably close For to a sure, hundred yeah. times. And you know, you think about the golf course, and he used a lot of great templates. But the best holes on the golf course are the non-template holes because. He was given yeah, that's this a good point. this beautiful land and this unbelievably unique land, and he and he created unique golf holes that fit the land. And I think that's where you can't allow the templates to you know be in a box, like you know. And but like if you were given a dead flat piece of land and you did all template holes, it'd probably turn out really good.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, Chicago is a good example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Really good example of that. And, and I think, you know, uh, I, I, maybe as Chicago aside, I think one of the reasons that McDonald Rainer templates work so good is that they were so good at fitting those concepts to the existing terrain.
1: Yeah,
0: You know, they would find the, the, the tabletop ridge that tilted right to left, like at the National, you know, put the Redan green on. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or find a find a hill to tuck the the Alps green behind an existing hill, not a constructed hill. So, you know, I think uh, when it comes across as being natural rather than forced, um, as a preconceived idea or concept, I think it works a lot better. Although I do love Chicago Golf Club too.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I um, I'm getting out there in a uh, in a couple weeks, so I'm I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, you should be. Yeah, I've walked it but it's uh it's a it's a big bucket list one I'm I'm getting off the list so. Um so you know I know you've been spending a lot of time in Minneapolis. Uh talk about a little bit about the golf city Minneapolis. I feel like it's a little bit under the radar.
0: Um I I would say so. Um I yeah, I've been hanging around there working at Town and Country Club for the last year and a half working on a master plan and um Bill Larson, the superintendent at Town & Country Club, has been really um, – yeah, he's given me an incredible tour uh, of, of all of, most of the courses around Minneapolis-St. Paul. And I would go so far as to say that it, you know, it, as far as the depth of great golf courses on, on the list of courses there, it's, it, it's one of the deepest lists I've ever seen. I mean, there are extraordinary courses in that city that no one's ever heard of. One of my favorite places there that many people probably haven't heard of is Somerset Country Club, which is uh, in St. Paul, and it's one of Seth Raynor's first golf courses. Um, I think it dates back to, I think it's pre-1920, 1919 or so. Mm-hmm. Wonderful setting, wonderful clubhouse, great course, all, all the template holes in there. One of the craziest Redans I've ever seen is at Somerset uh, Country Club. Um, yeah, and then you got, I mean, White Bear Yacht Club. Which is up in White Bear, Minnesota, which is not too 20 30-minute drive from St. Paul. I would put White Bear Yacht Club maybe in my top five of courses I've ever played. Wow, that's how good it—that's how good it is. Um, just a wonderful piece of land in a wonderful setting, um, real lay of on land uh, golf course. And then you've got, you know, you got Minnetonka, which has hosted a lot of championships, Interlocking. Um, there's a great old Donald Ross course, um, uh, near Lake Minnetonka, I think it's called Woodhill. You know, a lot of places like that that are kind of, as you said, under the radar, but just off the chart. Good Midland Hills another other Rainer course. I mean, Ooh. I could keep going and going. It's, what, it's a deep I, list of, have, of really great golf.
1: Have you played uh, Northwoods up in Duluth or
0: Northland Northland? Northland.
1: Yeah. I haven't
0: been there yet, but you know what? Every golfer I run into in Minneapolis, St. Paul says to me, "Have you been up to Northland yet?" With a really excited uh, uh, tone in their voice. So I'm excited to get up there.
1: Yeah, they. Uh, it's great. I've had so many people say, tell me, I got to go play Northland, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, so I, I got to get up to Minneapolis one of these days. Um,
0: yeah, you you want to make sure you go to Duluth in the summer though.
1: Yeah, I, the, the the
0: middle of summer.
1: I'm a, <laughs> cold I'm a, up there. I'm a Windy. Sh- Chicagoan, so you know it's not. I'm, I don't have quite as cold, but I know what the the constricted season and and what golf in, in May and June can be. Like even June can be just bad. <laughs> so, oh
0: yeah, yeah. I think when I was up there last week, and I mean had snow on the course of Northland. That's one of the reasons we didn't go up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's uh, yeah, this way up there. Um, so, uh, I, I apologize. I didn't get the, the name of who asked this, but what's one, uh, piece of knowledge that you take away, uh, from working with Whitman on, on the great projects, um, that he's, that you've been working with him on? Up in
0: that That's an easy question. Um, I'll never forget when I first started working with Rod and hanging around with him, you know, I was kind of like the, uh, the kid who had uh, who had read all the architecture books you know and all i wanted to do was talk about theory and and, and concepts and and that sort of thing and rod said to me one time you know he said hey guys, let me tell you something you know about 10% of golf architecture is philosophizing and talking about concepts and the the rest of the 90% is just hard work and i've watched rod work hard you know he's he's uh I won't reveal his age, but he's been in the business for a long time uh, mm-hmm. it, now, and you still see Rod on the bulldozer. You still see him doing finish work. You still see him out, you know, out there in the field working hard, and I'll never forget him saying that to me, Ten, 10% conceptual, 90% hard work. And I, I wrote down a quote he said one time that I still think is great. He said to me, you know, it's the guys with dirt under their fingernails who have a, the best chance at building the best. And, you know, I think about that all the time in terms of being out there and, and, and getting my hands dirty and working hard.
1: So yeah. It's a, that's what it, I
0: take away from this.
1: I imagine you don't lose perspective that way, too. It's like um, a lot of things. You, you move up in, in professional life and, and you forget what, you know, the job's really about, you know, and, and sometimes some of the cores of, of, of your work.
0: Exactly, and I, I've made myself a promise that the day that I don't want to get on a bulldozer or an excavator or go finish a green, um, I think I've lost lost the passion that I have, and you know I doubt I will. But in the day if that ever happens, I think I'll stop working. Uh-huh. And I, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Rod feels the same way.
1: Yeah, um, so so we're getting to, to the end. We got to do our uh, fried egg tradition here of overrated, underrated. Oh, yeah, just. Easy, rapid-fire questions, they've, you know, morphed into, you know, then they end up in debates. But but uh, yeah. first up, a, a Canadian tradition, poutine.
0: Uh, well, it's underrated, of course. There's nothing better than poutine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it's, it's not as popular in in, uh, in the States, but it, it, good poutine is good, good food, you know? Well, it's, it's because
0: you guys got to go to Montreal to eat it, then you'll realize how good it is.
1: Okay, so you, if you're in Montreal, you got to get the poutine.
0: Oh, no doubt. All no right. doubt.
1: I know my fiancé is going there for a bachelorette party uh, of one of her friends, so I'll tell her she has to get poutine. She'll look at me yeah. like I've got a third eye, though. Um, cross bunkers.
0: Um, underrated, I think.
1: Okay. I agree. I think they're awesome. Um where, where, you know, I've been getting a lot of flack for my love of the Great Hazard. W- what would you say about the Great Hazard or Hell's Half I Acre? See? I love it. That's
0: Hell's a, Half Acre, 7 at Pine Valley, right? Yeah, that's, um,
1: that's you know, the right answer. one of the coolest
0: answer. ones I've ever seen, and I absolutely loved it, is when I visited uh, Ben Crenshaw's Austin Golf Club. No way. Um, but, yeah, the ninth hole is a cool uphill, long par 5. And they have a great hazard right in the middle of the fairway, Um, you know, big mounds and big sandy areas. I was, I had my jaw hit the ground when I saw it. I thought it was so cool. And what's neat about it is, you know, we we philosophize about lateral strategies on golf holes. You know, you know, if a pin's tucked right behind a bunker, you want to drive left, and vice versa. You know, we always talk about that. What I love about the great hazard is it actually it's a it's a it's a you know, a challenge of, of simply hitting the golf ball, yeah. you know, where you, you've got to drive it far enough that you can get over that hazard. And if somehow or another, you don't hit the proper drive, then the next shot, you know, again, you just need power and length to get, to get over that hazard. It's, um, it's just, Quirky in a good way, and um, I think also part of the challenge of golf. You know, I think I think they're, you know, we complained about the golf ball going too too far and whatnot, but I still think that part of the challenge should occasionally be long hitting, and I think that hazard does a good job. How's that?
1: I think one of the things I love about it is it's like a really good way. Like, you know, most par fives you hit a bad drive and it's just like, oh, I just lay it up, you know, and like yeah. it's fine, you know, I'm just gonna lay it up to 120 and. I'll, I'll have, still have a good birdie chance. Like the great hazard, right. like if you don't hit a good drive, like you all of a sudden have like a mid to long iron into the green and exactly you're like, oh shit, I need to make par. Right. Uh, and the,
0: that's the, th- that's the thing about designing par fives too, right? There's too many par fives. I think where it's the second shot, that's completely boring. Mm -hmm. you know so so whenever you whenever you get a par five where you actually have something to do on the second shot if you're not going for the green i mean those are those are the great three shot holes
1: yeah i might i might start a campaign more great hazards
0: (laughs) i'll I'll try to find one for you
1: (laughs) um all right the doors oh
0: well i wouldn't say either underrated or or overrated i think they're properly appreciated
1: now you got to pick one uh i'll
0: go overrated then
1: all right all right sorry
0: guys
1: (laughs) yeah it's okay um music on the golf course
0: uh overrated as much as i'm a music fan i don't particularly enjoy people around me playing music
1: all right that's uh i I was expecting the opposite no (laughs) (laughs) um so all right, we, well we really appreciate the time, and I, you know, I, it's it's gonna this will probably be going up on Friday afternoon and over the weekend. So you know, what's uh, being a big music fan? What's one band <clears throat> that we may never have heard of, and the listeners have never have heard of that we should listen to this weekend?
0: Oh, what a great question! Um, lately, I have been listening to a lot of Gojira.
1: Gozira. Uh,
0: yes, G O J I R A.
1: Hold on, Gojira. I'm gonna write it down. I'm gonna listen to it this afternoon.
0: They've got it. they put out a new album a
1: few months ago called Magma,
0: and uh, I've been pretty pretty obsessed with uh, with that album. It's very very well done. G O heavy heavy music, but okay. it's very well done. G O G O J I R A. Our Gojira. Band. Gojira. All right. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Gojira is what the Japanese call Godzilla.
1: Oh. And, and,
0: and the band's and the band's from France. So there's okay. a small world scenario for it.
1: This is actually there's like almost too much there for my head to even <laughs> conceive. American yeah. movie, Japanese word, French band.
0: Yes. And the album is one of those great ones that you can hit play on the first track, and it is pretty entertaining right through the end. So Sounds I, like, like... I, like, I, like, I like the album concept where it's, where it's most fun to listen to it front to back rather than just picking individual tracks. So I think that this album kind of fits that, fits that uh, ideal for me.
1: Just like a great golf course, right?
0: Hey, there you go.
1: Perfect. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, Jeff, thanks so much. Um, and uh, I'll throw your – Jeff's on Twitter. Um, he's, I'll throw his uh, profile link into the pod and uh, give him a follow. And, you know, any questions he, we didn't get to, I'm sure he'd be happy to interact and answer on, uh, on Twitter. So thanks so much for coming yeah. on.
0: Hey, thanks, Andy. I appreciate the interest. Enjoyed it. All right. Bye. Bye.